Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we welcome Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing? Morning, Lester. I'm in good shape. Yourself? Very good. Um, we start the show talking about Guy Fawkes and Guy Fawkes Day fireworks and being mischievous. Is, is, is that still much of a thing? Where you well, it, it is the 5th of November. Remember, remember the 5th of November mm-hmm. gunpowder treason and plot. And um, yes, the, there are one or two firework displays going off. It, it's a bit more muted again this year because, of course, mass gatherings and all that have fallen out of favour. Some people are going ahead. To be honest with you, I love fireworks, so I'll be, I'll be gazing skyward. I just love the chemistry. For me, it's a scientist's dream, isn't it? And you watch this, and I, I sit there watching these amazing displays thinking, how do they do that? And then I think about how I might dream that up in the lab myself. So let's start there. How do fireworks actually work? And, and these big firework displays and, and how is it that over the course of, of, of human history you know that uh, that people discovered oh if we add gunpowder and some some colorant all of a sudden we have some spectacular spectacular nighttime displays it's all about chemistry and in fact, yeah. the chemistry we're using goes back to the guy who invented the Bunsen burner in some respects, Robert Bunsen. His real major contribution, apart from inventing the Bunsen burner to chemistry, was the science of spectroscopy. He realised that the reason we know what, for instance, the stars in the sky have in them without having to go and visit them is that we can look at the light that they're producing and that different chemicals produce different colours of light. And so if you heat them up and give them energy, they absorb Mm. energy and then they re-emit that energy as visible light. And different chemicals have different colours of light. So if you want to produce fireworks of different colours, you have to know your chemistry Mm. and your periodic table. And so when you see these beautiful bright red displays, for instance, this is often calcium, sometimes lithium. Because when you put atoms of that particular thing into a firework and then excite them by burning something hot, then the heat goes into the chemical, the chemical absorbs the energy and re-radiates it as light. You can also use things that burn, metals like magnesium, that burn very ferociously and produce bright white light. And they can be used for a range of different purposes to, to both give light, create sparkle effects, and also to give energy to other parts of the fireworks. Sodium, the stuff that you also find in street lights to make the streets nice orange colours at night, that's also used, very, very cheap chemical, in these fireworks to produce the bright oranges that you see. Barium, occasionally, to give the green colours, and iron salts, of course. So you know your periodic table, you pack all these things together, you give them a source of energy, and if you want to make whiz-bang sounds, then you basically turn your firework tube into the same Mm. as an organ pipe. The way an organ pipe works is that you have a source of air and vibration blowing along the pipe, and there is a section of the pipe which is open, and as the air rushes through that opening, it produces vibrations that effectively amplify within the body of your firework. And longer fireworks make a lower pitch, shorter fireworks make a higher pitch. 
Excellent. Uh, uh, here's a message, uh, and it's that time of the year uh, as we start planning Christmas treats and things like that. Hi, hi, guys. My parents have a Christmas cake for over one year. Is it still eatable? How is it possible that it can go? How is it? How is it possible it can go bad and fungus grow on it? I, I know there are some people who have traditions of of keeping a slice of your of your wedding cake, uh, for um <laughs> for yeah. one year off for your one year anniversary or, or for your um, child's christening, why, isn't it? Uh, yeah. and, and I tried to do that. Now one wasn't very well stored, and so the top tier of our wedding cake unfortunately went in the bin because it was not edible. <laughs> Shame, because the rest of the cake was delicious. But the answer is you you can keep your Christmas cake, and in fact. Believe it or not, I'm not making this up. The other day, we were actually eating some Christmas cake that we found, uh, my mum found actually, that she'd made. And because of Christmas being a bit of a write-off last year for obvious reasons, uh, it never got used. She'd actually put it in the freezer, can you believe? And it was delicious, even though it had been iced and everything. But many people don't put them in the freezer at all. And what preserves them is that the icing, which is sugar, forms a crystalline relatively impervious coat around the outside that keeps bugs out keeps the moisture in and if you've been making your cake properly you have put very liberal doses of one of the most wonderful chemicals known to <laughs> known to mankind and that's scottish whiskey and other things in your cake and alcohol of course is a fantastic preservative so the combination of the alcohol the very high sugar content careful storage and a layer around it icing which keeps the moisture in bugs out that will keep them in good shape for a relatively long period of time actually hi lester my 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 gran used to put coins in our christmas cake was that safe uh, my my great gran used to do the same well depends if uh, you eat the coin swallow it choke and die then no it's not very safe but if it's just for tradition the odd coin is not going to make really any difference in the grand scheme of things as long as you don't break your teeth on it so watch out for the coin in the same way as you watch out for bones in your in your piece of chicken you're eating and you'll be fine Oh two one four four six oh five six seven. Doctor Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, is taking your science and natural history related questions. Let's go to a quick voice note. Morning, Lester. Still here, Pinelands. How come we don't fall out of our beds when we sleep at night? Of course, we all go to sleep. We spend a third of our lives in bed. So why do we infrequently fall out of it? And the answer is that when we go to sleep, we are partially paralysed. And the evidence for that is that some people actually wake up before they unparalyze themselves and describe this terrifying experience of, oh, I was awake and I couldn't move. The way this works is that in your brain stem, which is the part of the nervous system that connects the spinal cord to the top part of your brain, there is a region called the subcerulea region. And that region contains a collection of nerve cells which have a gating role. When they become active, they cut off the flow of neurological activity flowing out of the motor circuits that move you down your spinal cord and out into the rest of the body. This has the effect of switching off specific and discrete motor circuits to minimise your ability to move around. The time when you're going to really move around the most is when you're dreaming. That happens during a phase of sleep called REM sleep, which happens periodically through the night a number of times. And you can tell when someone's dreaming because it's called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, because their eyes will be bobbing around under their eyelids. And that's when, if you weren't paralysed, you probably would be thrashing around a lot. People have done experiments where they've actually deactivated this region of the brainstem in experimental animals, and they can see that in these animals, when they dream, 
they do start prancing around, moving around, and for instance in cats they start stalking imaginary prey. So the answer is you don't fall out of bed because your brain switches off the flow of motor information out of the motor circuits in the brain, so you're partially paralysed and that minimises the chances of you rolling around and having an accident. Yeah, Chris, I I, I have a, a little bit of a fear of falling asleep on my back. Um, because that is when I often get that sleep paralysis. It's the process of falling asleep, then sort of stirring and waking up, and then you can't move your body. Is, are you, is a certain sleeping position prone to, to, to cases of, of sleep paralysis? No, uh, it's, it's nothing to do with your posture when you go to sleep. There are some claims, and I think they're pretty unreliable that your sleeping position may affect the intensity of your dreams there were some studies that were done comparing people sleeping on their front and on their back and on their sides Mm. with uh, what sorts of intensity of dreaming and whether they had nice dreams nasty dreams and there was some sort of weak trend there but i i think really Mm. it's not good quality research which we shouldn't set too much store by so no posture probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference except under the circumstances of some people if they have sleep apnea especially people who might have gained a bit of weight as you've got older right well if that's the case then when you go to sleep the soft tissues at the back of the throat can sag backwards and partially or in some people completely occlude or block the airway temporarily this can leave people low on oxygen periodically through the night causing them to gasp and and wake up feeling like they're drowning or that they they suddenly need to to sit up and breathe which they do and it could be that that's why in you and in people who have this condition that's why you have that uh, particular penchant for not sleeping on your back because it will exacerbate that particular problem david in newlands calling in good morning david good day some weeks ago, you said the universe was expanding. Are we in a bubble, or what are we expanding into? Are we going to pop out of a bubble, or where are we going? Thank <laughs> we you. I'll listen to you on the radio. We don't know, David, and this is the big question. The thing is that the universe is everything, and as far as we can tell, the universe is getting bigger. The evidence is getting bigger is because when we look at distant objects in the universe we can look at the light that's come across the universe to us and because the space between us and that object has got bigger the light which has passed through it has become more stretched out and it's the light equivalent of when you hear an ambulance coming towards you the siren changes in pitch and when you see the ambulance going away from you the pitch lengthens or drops again light does exactly the same thing and so as light comes across the universe it's getting bigger it gets stretched out and becomes more and more red that's called red shifting and the farther away we look indicating that we're looking at objects that are farther back in time too because of the speed of light the more red shifted those objects are indicating that the space between us and them has expanded more and is accelerating in its expansion. So as far as we can tell, at least at the moment, the universe is not static, the universe is growing. It's growing because the space on massive scales between us and other objects is increasing, and that is having the effect of making the universe grow, so it's getting bigger, but it's also growing faster. So the faster it goes, the faster it grows. What the ultimate endpoint is, we don't know, And what's outside the universe? Well, the philosophers would tell you that the universe is everything and therefore it's not expanding into anything because it is everything and therefore it's just getting bigger. 
Uh, hi, Lester. Um, why do we have to take out our laptops at airport security? This stems from about 20 years ago when there were a number of terrorist plots where people were modifying laptops and using things like the battery compartments in laptops, which were, because of the vintage of those machines and the, the way we tend to use laptops, pretty big and therefore had lots of capacity to get things like explosives in there. So they were using laptops as potential vehicles and conduits through which to, to smuggle explosives or build bombs. And as a result of that, the only way for people to make sure that they could see clearly through the laptop was to get them to be removed from people's luggage because some luggage contains things which are opaque to the scanners that are being used at airports and that would stop people getting a good view. Under other circumstances, it's just because of all the other crap and stuff that's in everyone's luggage. You can't see properly through the objects then either. And so the safest thing to do is to get everyone to take them out, put them in a separate box so that they could have appropriate viewing to look for the, the danger signs that, that these laptops have been modified in this way. With something much skinnier, like iPads, it's much harder for people to conceal much that's meaningful in there because there's just not the space to, to pack in the sort of amount of material that you would need, like there is with an, an old-fashioned laptop. Dr. Chris Smith, taking your science, natural history questions here on the Morning Review. Hi, Lester and Dr. Chris. Um, my question is around nerve damage. When you break your neck, break your back, and your nerves are damaged, causing paraplegia or quadriplegia, how is it that we cannot take nerves from essentially useless areas of our bodies, you know, the back of the arm or maybe the side of the rib or something like that, and graft them onto the damaged nerves? Or with today's modern science and 3D printing techniques, print the sheath and, and fill the nerve with the chemical it needs to, to transmit the electronic impulses. All great ideas and suggestions. And the answer is that all of the above are being tried to try and surmount the problem of why when we injure the central nervous system, meaning the brain and spinal cord, we are left with life-changing injury. We know that nerve cells can regenerate and can regrow because they do it in the peripheral nervous system. So if you chop your arm off or a finger or a foot and you sew it back on and you carefully reconnect the severed nerve trunks, then the nerve fibres inside can grow back down those nerve trunks and reconnect to the end organ or the end target that they had historically connected to. This does not happen in the central nervous system. Now, we don't know exactly why, but people have been working on this for a really long time. You might remember the tragic case of Christopher Reeve, who played Superman, and he was thrown from a horse and broke his neck and ended up with terrible paralysis, which ultimately claimed his life. When this happens, the injury to the central nervous system, which can also occur because of, say, a stroke, probably causes some kind of scarring, and that scarring leads to very very much in the short term a sealing of a wound, which is a good thing, but in the long term probably produces a barrier that stops nerve cells being able to grow back and so what researchers are looking at is the possibility of, of preventing those scars from forming so nerve cells can regrow back across 
injury sites. And the evidence that nerve cells in the central nervous system probably can do that is that just as we heard there, it is possible to take bits of peripheral nerve. People have done this using a nerve called the sural nerve from the leg. And you can graft this into the central nervous system. And nerves in the central nervous system will grow through that peripheral nerve and make connections again. People have done this in the optic nerve, for example, where you can take the optic nerve away, put the peripheral nerve in place, and retinal cells, which make the connections along your optic nerve into the brain, will grow back and go along the peripheral nerve and get to the brain again at the other end. So this suggests that it should be possible to make cells regenerate in the central nervous system, but probably at the moment it's surmounted by the fact that it's prevented by the fact that the nerve cells when they're initially injured some of them are going to die and the response to the injury is to produce scarring and probably the production of molecules which are there to help to control the injury or prevent worsening of the injury but have the long-term side effect of preventing regeneration. So scientists are working on a range of measures that would enable us to prevent those scars break down the, the materials that form that might inhibit regeneration, but then that still leaves the hard problem of, in your optic nerve alone, there are a million nerve fibres. That's just the optic nerve. The spinal cord is 10, 20 times bigger than the optic nerve, and there are therefore millions and millions and millions of nerve fibres running up and down there, like very complicated cables that connect the telephone system in an office block. And someone's come along and taken a hatchet to them and you've got to then work out how to connect each wire back to whichever telephone or whichever desk it originally connected to. And you're talking about doing that on the scale of a, a human being who's mm. feet long compared to a tiny baby which was developing when all those connections were first made. Yeah. So the challenge is a much bigger one in an adult than in a baby. And it's been quite fascinating that uh, this year's Nobel Prize for, for medicine went into, into to research of uh, chronic pain and also issues around nerves and nerve sensitivity. So it's very, very topical question. But Zuki in Big Bay, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Lisa. How are you? Very good, my African child. <laughs> What's your question? Hi, Dr. Chris. Um, so following on, on that question about sleep, I want to know how do um, sleep trackers in smartwatches work? Because obviously they can sense your um, your heart rate and your movement, but how do, how do they then interpret that to know that you're in light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep? Is it based on assumption of how fast your heart should be beat, uh, beating if you're in a certain phase? How How does it work? Thanks so much, Zuki. I, I've been quite interested in this, Chris, because I, I've been tempted to to download and, and then you have to pay for the premium for, for these sleep apps that also record you while you sleep, even records your snoring and you can play back and somehow detects how well or how bad you're sleeping at night. But how do they do it? I'm not sure of the value of these kind of things because all that happens is that you look at them, they tell you you're not having a very good night's sleep and then you lose sleep worrying about what that might be doing to you. The bottom line is they probably all work in a range of different ways, but a range of similar ways too. When we go to sleep, it's not just a static thing where you switch off, you rest for eight hours, then you wake up and off you go again. Sleep is a very dynamic process. It has a series of stages to it, and in those stages we display different physiology. Our body behaves differently, and you go through phases of very deep sleep interspersed with phases of much lighter 
sleep. And during that very light sleep, your brain activity is escalating and then it drops away again. And you tend to dream during the phases of, of high brain activity, light sleep, and then you have rest, restful, restorative sleep in the deep sleep phases. And this is also mirrored by changes in your breathing rate, changes in your heart rate, changes in the way you move. And these sorts of devices that can uh, track you at night will look at how many movements you're making, they'll look at how fast your, your heart is beating, they'll look at your blood pressure, they'll look at your respiratory rate and integrate all of that information to map it onto, in some cases they even record brain activity, uh, to work out basically what the different phases of sleep are and how much of each relative proportion you're getting. And we know what amount of each you're supposed to get for a healthy, restorative, good night's sleep. And so if a person is robbing themselves of enough uh, sleep, then the body surrenders dream sleep to have more deep sleep. And then it pays back when you get an opportunity to have a longer sleep and resets the balance. And so you can you can use these apps uh, under certain circumstances to give you some insights into how well you're sleeping. But as I say, they're not really a substitute for proper clinical data. Mm. And if you have a clinical problem that that needs proper investigation. For instance, we were talking about sleep apnea earlier. This needs decent, proper evaluation, not a cheap consumer app um, in the hands of an amateur. It needs to be proper clinical evaluation in the hands of, of a professional to diagnose a problem and help a person out. Dr. Smith, I'm 27 and I'm extremely forgetful to a point that I think I need help. How do I forget simple things throughout the day? a question on the whatsapp line well first of all most people forget many things most days and most of us accept that to err is human but to really foul things up takes a computer of course but it is not unusual to forget stuff so the first thing to do is to not label yourself as abnormal because it's easy to drive yourself into a state of panic and when you're panicking you do forget more things so many many people have a bad memory and there's nothing wrong with them. It's called normal life. It's also called being busy because the thing that enables us to focus on things and remember things is having time to do that and having the, the focus and making a plan and doing things in a stepwise fashion. If you are really busy, you are really chaotic or you've got young children who are needing sorting out and you're being disturbed all the time, people are asking you things, phone keeps ringing, you're continuously lurching from one task to the next and it's dragging your brain from one thing to the next. It's very cognitively fatiguing and at the same time very hard, therefore, to focus on and have a mental checklist for things. So if you do find you are forgetting things, if you find that this is a new thing, it suddenly started happening and actually it's associated with a new baby, a new job, a new home, a new husband or wife. You know, if you've changed something in your life that, that actually seems to occur around the same time, probably it's because your life status has changed. Perhaps you're not. We were just talking about sleeping. Perhaps you're not sleeping very well. And if you're tired, you will forget things. So have a look at you know, what has changed that might be associated with this. If this is a long-standing thing and it's getting worse, then perhaps that needs investigating. If it's a long-standing thing, you've always had it, and actually it's, 
it's the way you are, then mm. probably you need to look at what sort of devices could I use in my life in order to help me. I know I've got this. I know I, know I tend to forget things. So why, am, why is that happening? What can I change about my life mm. to make it happen less? And what can I do to help me so that if I do forget something, it doesn't matter? So write things down, make lists, organize your day in, a, in an ordered way so that you've got other reminders and cues to help you not to forget stuff. Well, then it's a nice way to end off this week's edition with people asking, well, how do you remember all this? Good morning, Dr. Chris. How do you know all this random stuff? You are amazing. Another question. I have never heard a question that Chris can't answer. So here's my question. Is there anything that he doesn't know? And why do some people remember everything like Chris and some people remember nothing like me? Thank you, Tracy. I think it's all part of life's rich tapestry. And we're all really good at something and everybody has got different skills. And when I watch a musician play and somehow manage to play these amazing bits of music and they don't have any sheets in front of them and it's all coming out of their head and they can play for three hours at a concert and it's all right and it all meshes with what everyone else is doing, (laughs) I am in awe. And I remember going to a concert once and I watched this guy pick up his guitar Actually, it was John Anderson out of the group, yes. And it was totally out of tune. And he went, oh, dear. And then continued to amuse the audience talking while at the same time tuning a guitar uh, and then started playing. It was perfect. And, you, and I watched John Entwistle from The Who do the same thing. And I thought, this is absolutely amazing. How do these people do that? So we're all good at something. And um, in my yeah. case, it's, I'm a pathological geek. That's what I'm good at. <laughs> I guess also uh, the 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 muscle memory of also some things. Like for example, my dad for for the majority of his life, he's had to remember the names of of his brothers. And then I came along. So when he he's trying to look for me, he calls out uh, Clifford. I mean Clarence. I mean. Vincent, I mean, oh, Lester. And, and the same with my sister. He runs off his sister's names be, before he gets to my sister's because he's having to deal for the majority of his life with only those three names. And then I come along and there's another name he has That's to That's the excuse he uses anyway, Lester, isn't it? <laughs> but no, I always say to my students, because they all sit there in lectures and, uh, and, they, and they just highlight stuff in handouts now. And I always say that's the wrong approach. Always take notes in lectures. Always write stuff down and then go home and write it up again. And the reason for that is you have then translated my thoughts and my way of thinking and my way of speaking into the way your brain wants to think and write. But also the mere fact of writing things down does create a muscle memory and a different way of accessing the information via the way in which you write it. And it makes it much easier to remember and it crystallises it into your mind rather than just running a highlighter over a page, which makes it much harder to remember. Dr. Chris Smith, looking forward to next week. Have a great weekend. And you. Thanks, Lester. Bye, everybody. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.